Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Uh, with Christmas this upcoming weekend, I want us to turn our attention to Philippians chapter 2, the first part of it, uh, three times in a short three-sermon series entitled Down and Up. Uh, Down and Up refers to the pattern Christ endured and experienced in his life. In the incarnation at Christmas, Christ came down. Uh, He came down for us. But of course, the story uh, of Christ doesn't end with Christmas, that he did not stay in a position of lowliness and humiliation, but he was exalted to a place of honor. He was lifted up. And Christians, of course, are called to pattern our lives after Christ, to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to live lives of humility, lives of moving down, in order that at the proper time, God might bring us up. This, of course, is First Peter 5. If you don't know this verse, it's amazing In it, Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves, go down, be willing to condescend, so that at the proper time God may exalt you. He may lift you up, down and up. That's the pattern of Christ. It's the pattern that we're called to follow. And so today we're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, at Christian humility. Uh, This Friday at our Christmas Eve service, we'll look at verses 5 to 8 at Christ's humility. And then next Sunday, we'll close by looking at verses 9 to 11 at Christ's exaltation. So that's where we are, and that's where we're going. At this time, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me. We stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's word and the receiving of God's holy word given to us. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 1, hear now God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you pray with me once more? God of light and illumination, enlighten and shine down upon our hearts to give us uh, not only hope that there is light in whatever tunnel many of us find us in, but there would also be light shined in the darkness areas of our hearts that are discouraged, uh, that are arrogant, uh, that are living in and hiding in shame uh, and sin. Oh, God of light and illumination, shine your light upon us. Shine your light now upon the reading and preaching of your word, that we would understand this passage to be more than uh, the meaning that we get from literary analysis, uh, but it would be a transforming power uh, in our hearts. And this can only be done um, by your spirit. The spirit, would you do this work? And then would you do the work of turning this into worship so that even the receiving of your word as our eyes gaze then upon Christ magnified and lifted up uh, that our hearts would give him the glory and praise that he so deserves. So bless our time now. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we had our men's retreat uh, not too far from uh, Lancaster, and the theme of that retreat was pride. Um, and in our sessions, uh, we looked at various things regarding that issue. And in one of the sessions, we read C.S. Lewis's famous essay in uh, Mere Christianity on Pride. 
And in this essay, he gives a description of humility, of what a humble person looks like. And I just want to read this for you this morning. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And here lies the essence of the way that Lewis describes humility for us, a type of self-forgetfulness, not even thinking about yourself at all. And I think it's from this quote in Mere Christianity that uh, this other definition has been widely circulated. It's uh, popularized. It's often attributed to C.S. Lewis, and it goes something like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, all of these definitions, they're very good. They're very helpful. They're very instructive. They get us closer and closer to the meaning of humility as described in Philippians 2. And the reason we're talking about humility is because in the season of Christmas, because of the birth of Christ, because of God eternal taking on human nature and being born as a baby in Bethlehem, because Christ displayed the kind of humility, we think about what he displayed and we start looking inward to see, are our lives marked with this kind of humility? Are you marked with humility? Are you a humble person? Or maybe put another way, do you exude the aroma of humility or do you exude the aroma of haughtiness? Now, the Bible, of course, talks much about humility, much in praise of humility. Psalm 25, verse 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Psalm 147 says, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Proverbs 3 says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 22, 4 says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You know, there are countless other places in scripture that praise and prize humility. And so we know it's important. However, we live in a confusing time because even if you want to be humble, doesn't the world demand a kind of pride and arrogance? How can you survive and even thrive in a world that encourages you to be aggressively self-promotional? How can you contend in a world that rewards those who strive to look good in front of others, even at the expense of climbing over people, in a world that passes over those who truly think of themselves less? It's tough times we live in. What compelling vision is there to pursue a life of Christian humility? What would make humility worth it? Now, Apostle Paul helps us think through this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, which we read this morning, is one sentence in the Greek. And it begins with a series of four if clauses. Now, the translators in the ESV have only included it once, but in the Greek, it's there four times. And it'll read uh, something like this in verse 1. So let me read it again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. 
So Paul begins with these four ifs because he's trying to establish this great then clause, this then, if, 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 then. He's like a parent trying to teach a kid about something really important by asking sort of four leading questions. If these are true and you know they are, then isn't this also true? You know, parents, it seems, have intuitively learned this parenting trick where when you are trying to teach your kid a lesson, you kind of string them along with some leading questions, don't you? Imagine that your child has a great difficult time of putting away their clothes into the dresser as you've instructed them to. Instead, you find it over and over again in a pile in the corner of their room. Now, what do you do? How do you teach them? How do you instruct them to put away their clothes? Well, one tactic is you refuse to wash their clothes anymore. Well, that wouldn't get very far. So what would a wise parent do? Well, you would sit your child down and begin to ask some questions. Did I buy you your clothes? Yes. Did I wash your clothes? Yes. Did I dry your clothes? Yes. Did I fold your clothes? Yes. Then do you really think it's too much of me to ask you to put your clothes away? Boom. Got them. You've trapped them. They're five years old. Their brains are wrinkled. Oh my gosh. You're right. Your statements, your leading questions, they lead to this logical, inescapable conclusion. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's parenting his way through the Philippian Christians in order to get this point. He begins by asking, is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Is there any comfort from love? Yes. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Yes. Is there any affection and sympathy? Yes. And then Paul's saying, well, If you're saying yes to all this, if you agree that we share these great blessings and benefits of the gospel together, then, verse 2, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, isn't it completely logical that you guys who share the most important spiritual realities and blessings in your life, isn't it then logical that you share the same mind? His point is simply this. The gospel unifies. It doesn't divide. You know, a little earlier, Paul was encouraging his readers that they should be striving together, not striving against one another. And so he writes in Philippians 1, verse 27, these words, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Paul desires to see a one-mindedness, a one-spirit in the church. Now, this is not Paul's unique vision for this church. Paul is just following in line with Jesus's prayer for his disciples. Now, in John 17, we get insight into the prayer of Christ. Paul wasn't there, but he was very aware of what Christ prayed. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, the glory is praying to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Paul's plea for the Philippians to be one is exactly in line with Jesus's prayer. So unity is the goal. But according to Paul, what is the great obstacle to unity? What is the great hindrance to Jesus's vision of a unified, one-minded, one-spirited people? What is that hindrance? And the answer, according to Paul, is selfishness. 
Paul offers the solution in verse 3 when he writes this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. According to Paul, selfish ambition and conceit lead to disunity. And humility is that which preserves unity in the church. Now, here's what I want you to notice, because when I say humility and I ask you to think of the opposite, we tend to think of pride. But Paul doesn't contrast pride with humility, but notice that he contrasts instead selfishness. He suggests that the opposite of humility in this case is selfishness, that these are the two competing uh, motivations Paul is dealing with. It's because you're selfish, which is evidenced in selfish ambition and conceit, that the unity of the church is not coming about. So he begins with these two things. Now, now let's look at them. So first we see, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now the word selfish ambition is a newer ESV translation. If you have an older version of the ESV, it might say something like rivalry, but it's getting across the same thing. Both words are getting across the idea of putting yourself forward first, putting yourself above others, before others, even at the expense of others. And that's why he uses that word selfish, selfish ambition. You have no regard for others. Now ambition itself is not bad. Ambition is good. You should be ambitious for the kingdom of God. You should be ambitious to give God glory in all your pursuits in life. The problem is selfish ambition. The problem is when you have no issue stepping over others to get ahead. When you have no problem putting others down in order to gain higher standing. You have no problem casting others aside to gain a step forward. That's when it becomes selfish ambition. And that threatens the unity Christ prayed for. So my first question is do you see and sense in yourself and in your heart any trace of selfish ambition at work? Paul then also warns against conceit. Conceit is a two-part uh, Greek word literally translated as empty glory. Empty glory. It's the type of glory that you don't receive from somebody else, but a kind of glory that you are collecting for yourself. It's, the, it's a kind of uh, self-blessing that you are bestowing upon yourself, not received from others, but all derived from within. It's like uh, posting something on social media and then logging into every other account that you own, liking that post, and then feeling really good that your post has been liked. Conceit, self-delusion, empty glory. How often are you consumed with thoughts about yourself? Are you conceited? Do you fish for praise and compliments and attention from others asking leading questions? Do you praise in order to receive praise and encourage in order to be encouraged? Pat someone else on the back and then extend your shoulder <laughs> to receive one in return. Selfishness and self-centeredness, Paul is saying. Selfishness and self-centeredness, evidence and selfish ambition and conceit, desire to gain for yourself despite the cost others have to pay, that is the great enemy of humility and the obstacle to unity. This kind of heart and mind, so bent inward that you can only see and you only want to see yourself, and therefore you're blind to others. You're blind to others' presence. You're blind to others' preference. You don't consider them because it's only about you. And when you can only see yourself and you're blind to others, then you are most dangerous, not just to others, but even to yourself. You know, every once in a while, I have to drive Eunice's car. 
And when I get in her car, there are three absolutely crucial adjustments I must make before I get on the road. And the first, of course, is to move the driver's seat back because otherwise the steering wheel is pressed up against my chest and I have to drive like a T-Rex. <laughs> and so I move the seat back. And then the second thing I must adjust is the mirror. And then the third thing are the side mirrors. Why do I need to adjust the mirrors? Because when the seat is closer, the mirrors in order to see back are angled more down. When I move back, I have to move them up because if I leave them the way they are, the angles pointed inward, and I look at the rear view mirror and the side mirrors, all I see is my own reflection. And I don't mind it so much. But if I'm driving and I look to see both left and right or in the back, and all I see is myself, then that is both distracting and dangerous. Right? In a car, it's dangerous to only be able to see yourself and nobody else on the road. In fact, only to the degree that the mirrors help me see others more clearly am I less of a danger on the road. I am better able to serve others the more clearly I see them and the less I'm able to see myself. Paul is saying something like that to us this morning. Your inability to see beyond yourself, your agenda, your reputation, your glory, your kingdom, your advancement, your inability to see beyond yourself is destructive and dangerous in how you relate to others. And it gets in the way of humility. Selfishness and self-centeredness, the enemies of humility. But then what is humility? Paul goes on in verse 3, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The mirrors in the car should be positioned in a way where you see others more clearly and not yourself. Therefore, humility is the ability to see others and their needs and their interests more clearly above your own. Humility requires laying aside selfish ambition, laying aside conceit, and counting others more significant than yourself. And this is important that we understand a biblical definition of humility and not a cultural understanding of humility. How often were you taught or it was modeled for you or expected of you, uh, this idea that humility is measured and determined by how self-effacing you are? No, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, it was this person. And we do that so often. We believe that's humility. We deflect people's compliments. We reject people's praise. And then we feel like we've been humble. But humility, friends, is not about being passive or weak or quiet. In fact, I would say it's the other way. Humility requires you to be active and strong, even violent. Now, what do I mean by that? The act of humility and counting others as more significant than yourself requires that you remove yourself out of the center of your own life and you put somebody else there. And that's a hostile act against yourself. That's an act of aggression because everything in my will and everything in my nature does not want anybody else to be there in the center except for me. So humility requires an act of dying to yourself, an act of aggression against your nature and your will. You know, when we think of humility, if I were to ask you to think of humility in terms of math, how do you envision humility? And most of us would envision it as subtraction. And that's exactly the problem. We think of humility merely in terms of subtraction. Oh, humility requires thinking less of myself, moving myself out of the equation. But humility, friends, is less about subtraction and more about addition. It's about adding somebody else to the equation. Not simply about removing yourself, but bringing somebody else in. You know, if that's true, 
that definition of humility we put up here at the beginning of the sermon needs to be tweaked a little bit. We want to say humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. But what if according to Philippians 2, it's actually something quite different? Humility means neither thinking less of yourself nor thinking of yourself less, but it actually means thinking of others more than yourself. Addition. Because notice, look at verse 3. It does not say this. In humility, count yourself less significant than others. It's not what it says. Rather, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Esteem them highly. Value them greatly. Consider them more. Well, how do I do that? Verse 4 tells us that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. The very opposite of selfishness involves selflessness, a kind of other-centeredness that goes against the grain of everything my heart and my mind desires. When we think only of our own interests and less of others, that ends up becoming destructive, self-centered, inward-bent. How many of you have ever walked into a room and you want to be noticed? You want to be seen. You want others to know you are there. And so it stings a little bit when no one says hi. It stings a little bit when you've been there for 15 minutes and then someone comes up to you and says, oh, you just get here? We notice when nobody notices us. And yet, how consumed are you with the thought of making sure that others are noticed when they enter a room? How much care and concern do you put into making sure that you let them know, hey, I see you? When my own interests want to say in a room full of people, here I am, counting the interests of others above my own beckons me to more frequently say, there you are. There you are. There you are. And I heard this story about two prime minister candidates in the UK in the 19th century, uh, William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli. And William Gladstone was uh, sharp and he was intelligent. And Benjamin Disraeli was endearing and personable. And it was said that Gladstone helped people to see how important he was, whereas Disraeli helped people see how important they were. And one biographer captures this story that they both attended a dinner party. And there they met uh, Winston Churchill's mother, uh, Jenny Jerome. And later, this reporter came up and asked her impression of both men. What did you think of both candidates? And this is what she said. When I left the dining room after sitting next to Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. But when I sat next to Disraeli, I left feeling like I was the cleverest woman in England. Let me ask you, who was more humble? Which man in humility counted others more significant than himself? Which looked to the interest of someone else above his own? Which really begs, gets us to beg the question, or begs this question that, that, that we look inward and we start asking ourselves, uh, what place do I believe others have compared to me? Do I position others above me or below me? Are their interests higher than mine? Are they lower than mine? Do I see them as more significant or less significant? Now, in evaluating this and asking yourself these kinds of questions, we need to make an important distinction because I think the tendency is for us to therefore focus on how is humility being evidenced in my life. 
But I think what we should think is less, how is humility evidence in my life? And focus a little bit more on how am I cultivating humility in my life? But let me clarify that distinction. Uh, the question of evidence forces you to think about humility outwardly and externally. It gets you to think about how are others noticing my growth in humility? Are others sensing and seeing its presence or not? So evidencing humility is about kind of assessing your humility from the outside. But the question of cultivation forces you to look inwardly and internally. To not be so worried about what other people think, but ask yourself, am I cultivating this? Am I giving attention to my own humility? And believing that if you do that first, the fruit will take care of itself later. And you have to think about a cultivating humility in you, sort of like cultivating a garden. At least two things need to be going on. Something needs to be uprooted. Something needs to be sown. You uproot selfishness and self-righteousness. Those need to be pulled out. All those thoughts where you're more significant, you're better, you're more important than others need to be uprooted, taken out in its place. Selflessness and other centeredness need to be sown in. The heart tilled, your thoughts watered, attention given. You can't count the interests of others above your own if you don't even know what their interests are. And yet we are so consumed with our own that we forget to ask, we forget to see. But when true biblical humility begins to grow and the fruit begins to yield in our lives, it's beautiful. It creates beautiful people. It allows for a harmonious, peaceful community where people are thriving and life is being given to one another. Now, what would it look like if the church, not just our church, but the church Christians, evidenced this kind of humility? What would that look like to the world? And yet, of course, the problem still remains because the problem is always me. The problem is always the inward bent nature of my heart by which I can't help but consider myself more significant than you. I can't help but desire and believe that my interests are so much more important than your own. How can the vision of biblical humility actually grasp us when it seems so foreign and alien and strange to us? And the answer, of course, is that it only happens when you begin to see yourself as the object of this kind of humility. It's when you see that in the eyes of another, you were counted more significant than himself. In the eyes of another, your interests were counted above his own. True humility begins to be sown into your heart when it strikes you that there was one who not only humbled himself for you, but was humiliated for you. What would it mean and what would it do to the people of God if you really had a sense of who you are in the eyes of Jesus Christ? If you really understood how he saw you and thought of you and what he did for you, because it would not only humble you, it would dignify you. You know, later on, Paul goes on right in verse 8 about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul goes on to say, Christ humbled himself for you, but more than that, he was humiliated for you. Right? In humility, he counted your interest above his own. He took on your sins so that through his death you might find life. He humbled himself. But he also was humiliated for you because the death that he endured was death on a cross. The execution of a common criminal 
uh, he endured, taking on the shame and dishonor of your inwardly bent heart that he corrected with his selfless act of sacrifice. The king came down low. Oh, how low did he come in order to bring you up. And in his selfless sacrifice for you, he gave you so much honor. He gave you so much dignity. And see, when you get that Jesus was not a carpenter who died on the cross for your sin, which would humble you, but he was the son of God come in the flesh who took the cross for you, it honors you. Humility, therefore, is what makes kings kings. Christ, the true humble king, he takes all the weakness associated with humility and makes you see it as strength. He takes all that people despise about humility and he makes, it, makes you see it as dignified. You know, at the time of the Bible in the Greco-Roman culture, humility was not considered a virtue. In fact, it was, it was considered one of the greatest shortcomings of a person, right? Humility was the garment of the weak. And in our society, humility often is considered along similar lines. Maybe not said in that way, but what place does humility have in our society, right? In the age of front-facing cameras and selfies and a culture of virtue signaling and posturing, uh, in a society rewarding your self-promotion, and glorifying self-made stories, you know, biblical humility has really lost its place. And it needs to be reclaimed, and it can be, because Jesus Christ came, the King came, and his showing humility has shown that it is a virtue. He humbled himself, humiliated himself for you to raise you to the place of honor. And therefore, you were never more dignified, you were never more royal, you were never more kingly than when you begin to cultivate humility in your own life to represent that of the very king of kings who came down and served you in order to lift you up. Christ has restored great beauty and great glory and great dignity to humility. Well, if you believe that, and if it's at work in your heart, then what? I want to close just by offering uh, two questions for you to think through. And there's so many to think through, but just two. The first is this. Where is humility required in my life to preserve unity with other Christians. Where is humility required in my life to preserve unity with other Christians? And on the other side of that, where is selfish ambition and conceit an obstacle to Christ glorifying unity? You know, it seems these days that so many people are of one mind and of full accord regarding to various different issues, aren't they? But how sad is it when believers are more in one mind in a full accord with unbelievers than they are with other Christians? Christian humility says that you can have legitimate criticism of another Christian, but that criticism won't lead to condemning them. Christian humility means you can have differences and disagreements with other believers, but you won't divide over them. Rather, in counting them more significant than yourself, their interests above your own. Even if you think you're right and they're so wrong, you choose not to strive against them, but you strive with them. Where is humility required in your life to preserve unity with other Christians?
Second question to ask is this, who do I have the most difficult time counting as more significant than myself? I'm sure you can think of one or two people. Think of that person who in your heart you've determined they do not deserve my humility. Who is that one person that you've written off and as a result, all of their actions, all of their words, it falls so easily under your criticism and condemnation. They can't get anything right. So all they deserve is my judgment. And begin to dare pray for them, pray for you, pray what would it be like if God were to give me the eyes to see them as Christ sees them? Christ who saw them and considered their interest above his own. Christ who saw them and considered them more significant than himself. If you dare pray such a thing, the gospel would melt any resistance and hardness of your heart right out of it. If Christ was willing to be humiliated for them, how can I refuse to be humble toward them? How can I refuse others if Christ did not refuse me? It then honors Jesus to have his mind and his heart among ourselves as we consider others. So then we cultivate the humility of Christ for the very sake of Christ. As we close, we remember this Christmas season. We remember how Christ moved down to bring us up. And having been marked with Christ's humility, what would it look like for us as believers to cultivate Christian humility in such a way where we are moving down to bring others up? That with no pride or arrogance, with no selfishness and self-centeredness, when we move down, we don't try to bring others down with us, but we move down so that they may be lifted up. This is the way of Christ. And with the gospel empowering us, we simply not just think of ourselves less than others or others less than ourselves or ourselves less, but what we begin to think is of others more. And in doing so, we exhibit the type of humility as our humble king. Let's pray.